thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Well, we have arrived at the end of uh, the book of Joshua. Who would have thought that ever would have happened? Jodine said we've arrived at the promised land. Uh, We've actually got there this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open to Joshua 24. We want to take some time, obviously, to uh, have a good look at this passage, this final word in the book of Joshua. Uh, Just before Nicole and I moved out to Australia about 20 years ago, uh, I was planning to do some study at Sydney Uni. And so before we came out, I needed to get a transcript of my completed undergraduate. Uh, I wasn't, uh, I hadn't graduated yet, I just kind of completed all the classes. And so on one fine day, I think it might have been in June, I wandered down to what's now Tyndale College in north of Toronto and uh, went and saw a number of faculty and made sure that I had actually finished everything that needed to be finished, that I could actually get the transcript and head off uh, to, to Australia, hopefully to do some further study. Uh, and so eventually uh, I got everything kind of finalized, went to the office, I got the uh, transcript printed off. There it is in my hot little hand. I had basically done all I need to graduate. Went out the front doors, opened the doors, and nothing happened. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever wondered that life would be so much better if it had a soundtrack. You know? You just kind of open the doors to some sort of power chord. You know, ah, you know, light and fireworks. So you kind of go, this is significant. I don't know if you've ever had an event in your life where you're a little bit uncertain about what it's like. A soundtrack would be really helpful then too. Because if Darth Vader's theme starts playing, you know, I don't want to go into this meeting. Right? You just kind of would know beforehand. And I, one of the questions that I have about Joshua 24, as we kind of get to the end of this book, is what's the soundtrack behind this chapter? This is the final word. And you know, we've been tracking through the book for a long time now, and there's been a, a lot to celebrate within it. But as we've kind of come to the conclusion of the book, there's been this sustained kind of emphasis on faithfulness uh, and, and kind of tying up some loose ends within the story. And we find that again here. But what's the soundtrack underneath it? Because there's some pretty heavy stuff that takes place here. Is this kind of really triumphant? Uh, Is it uh, really upbeat? Is it kind of that pop song at the end while the credits roll that nobody really listens to very much? Is it kind of something in a minor key? And I want to kind of keep coming back to this idea of what the tone of the story is. Because I think as this final word for us, it's what invites us to reflect on what the book of Joshua has to say to us as individuals, but also as a community of faith here as well. I mentioned that it ties up a few loose ends. At the very end of the chapter, we're actually told uh, about a couple of deaths, and we're told about a third burial. Uh, We're told that Joshua died at uh, 110 years old and was buried uh, in the land of his inheritance. We're not told that he was mourned. Uh, We're not told that that, uh, everyone thought he was a great guy, like we are with Moses. He just died and is buried in his inheritance. We're then told that Joseph's bones were also buried. This is kind of an interesting loose end to tie off because it's a loose end that goes all the way back to the end of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis, you might remember the story of Joseph and his technical dream coat. He makes his brothers promise to bring his bones back to the land of Canaan when they finally return. Well, they don't return for hundreds of years. They're enslaved by the Egyptians for a long, long time. And so it takes a long time before the bones get to begin their journey back. But eventually, in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel leave, Moses somehow remembers the bones of Joseph, and off they go. And here, at the very end of the book, we're told that Joseph's bones were buried, kind of where he had wanted them to be, hundreds 
of years later. This is kind of an interesting kind of link back to what's known as the patriarchal story, the stories of the patriarchs, the, the fathers of the people of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you'll see that that actually becomes fairly important here. We're also told about the death of Eliezer the priest. So a handful of figures, particularly Joshua and Eliezer, who have led the people in this pr pretty significant period of their history. But the story itself is quite interested in the patriarchal narrative and kind of tying together a really significant theme. So if you have a look in, in uh, Joshua 24, it begins with Joshua assembling all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. Now, we don't know where Shechem is. I've never had to drive there and pick somebody up. I've never flown there. I, like, I have no idea where Shechem really is in the context of the land of Israel. I don't need to know. But for the people of Israel, the, the place of Shechem was really important uh, kind of from a symbolic reason. When Abraham was called by God from the land of the Chaldeans and kind of came down to Canaan, the first place he stopped was Shechem. And it was at Shechem that he built his first altar and where he heard from the Lord. The Lord spoke to him again. And so Shechem kind of becomes symbolically the very heart of the land of Israel. So in Deuteronomy, when Moses is telling the people of Israel what to do when they enter into the land, he says, when you get into the land, go to Shechem. There are two hills on either side, and Shechem's kind of nestled in the valley between them. And on the two sides of those hills get the people of Israel to reiterate the blessings and the curses to one another. Cite these things back and forth at Shechem, and they do that in Joshua chapter 8. So it's significant that Joshua draws the nation of Israel right back to the very heart of the land, right back to Shechem. And then he begins this whole process by speaking as a prophet might. Now, Joshua has spoken the word of the Lord all the way through the book, but a lot of what he's had to say has kind of been, shall we say, a double report. God has told him how they are to attack Jericho. Joshua has told the Israelites, this is how we're going to attack Jericho. But for the first time in the book, he actually functions as a prophet speaking the words of the Lord. And if you have your Bibles, have a look at this section in chapter 24 that goes from verse 2 all the way to the end of verse 13. And I want to read it all out to you. It's a fairly long section, but I think it's quite significant. These are the words of the Lord spoken by Joshua. And I want you to try to listen for the themes of this speech. What are the things that God is drawing attention to? Because it's a history. It's another retelling of the story of the people of Israel. And if you like some added kind of challenge, try to listen out for what's not there. It's always interesting to try to see what's not in Scripture, but sometimes what's not there is actually the most interesting. So let me read this out, see if you can pick some themes, and then for those of you trying to spot what's missing, I'll point it out for you. All right, here we go. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with the chariots and the horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, 
but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Here endeth the word of the Lord. It's kind of an interesting speech, isn't it? Did you pick the the primary theme through there? So often God draws attention to the fact that he has protected them, that he has delivered them against all sorts of threats. The Egyptians came against you. Well, I saved you from them. Uh, And then uh, against the the Amorite kings, I saved you from them. And against the citizens of Jericho, I saved you from them. And from the king of Moab and from Balaam and his curses, I delivered you, I delivered you, I delivered you. And then there's this kind of this sub-theme of provision. I've given you houses. I've given you cities. You, you, You are surrounded by farms you didn't plant. You didn't have to work hard for what you have received. I have provided for you. I provided for Abraham. I provided descendants for him. These are the things that God has to say. But what's the, what's the, what's the theme here? What's the soundtrack? I mean, if there were music underneath this, what would it be? Would it be very <clears throat> solemn and dignified music? Because this is the Lord speaking after all. Or, or would there be a sense of, you know, I don't know, would it be really light and airy and kind of, you know, pop music of a sort. Well, I don't know. I wonder, given Joshua's response, which we'll get to in a moment, whether it might not be some sort of a pleading tone, urging the people to some sort of response. It reminds me, actually, of Micah chapter 6. In Micah chapter 6, the Lord speaks to his people and says to them on several occasions, how have I burdened you? How have I made your life difficult? Was it a burden when I sent Moses and Miriam and Aaron to rescue you? Was it a burden when I saved you from Balaam? Has anything that I've done burdened you? He's pleading and, and asking for some sort of response, which is exactly here what Joshua will call them to in a moment. But did you pick what's missing? Obviously very hard to spot because it's not there. But fascinating. I think the most interesting verse is actually the end of verse 7. Let me read it to you again. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. If you know the story of Israel, that's a really, really oversimplified version of what happened in the wilderness, isn't it? I mean, in the wilderness is when they were brought to Mount Sinai, the very mountain of God, and received the commandments of God, when they entered into a covenant relationship with him. In the wilderness was when they rebelled against him again and again and again complaining about the fact that God had saved them from Egypt, complaining about not having bread, and then complaining about having too much bread, and then wanting meat, and then the water's too bitter, or there's not enough water, or whatever it might be. And the reason they spent a time in the wilderness, a long time in the wilderness, is because they refused to believe the promises of God that he could protect and deliver them into the land of Canaan. What an interesting retelling 
God focuses not on their failures, not on their rebellion, not really on anything that they did. He focuses on himself. How very typical of God, isn't it? Let me tell you what I've done for you. And this, of course, invites a response, doesn't it? It invites a response, which is exactly what Joshua then calls them to. But just think for a moment about the sorts of responses that this kind of a speech from the Lord invites. There's a handful, aren't there? I mean, Joshua could have stopped and said, so, given what the Lord has done, let us worship the Lord. Let's, uh, let's uh, kill some calves and, uh, and sacrifice some bulls and uh, let's celebrate. Let's have a festival before the Lord. Let's worship him and give thanks for his goodness. That would have been appropriate, don't you say? Or what if he had said to them, you know, because of what God has done for us, let us declare to the nations his goodness. Because remember, God had called them into existence and brought them into the land that they would be a living, breathing example of what it looked like to live in relationship with God to draw all the nations to them. This is why they existed. It would have been an appropriate response. But what Joshua actually calls them to is a more foundational response. Have a look at what he says in verse 14. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. This call to faithfulness and service is the fundamental response required. You see, without faithfulness and obedience, our songs of praise and thanksgiving become empty religious ceremony, don't they? Without an underlying commitment to obedience and faithfulness, our declaration to others of what God has done exposes our hypocrisy, doesn't it? If I'm telling you how great it is to follow God and, and what a wonderful God he is, but you see no evidence of that in my life, how great can God possibly be? This is the fundamental, the fundamental thing that he has called them to, faithfulness, service to the Lord. But then it, it starts to get a little bit weird. If, you're, if you have your Bibles, follow along. Here's the very next thing he says. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Did you hear that? Throw away your gods, which suggests that there were gods for the people to throw away. I would have thought this command should have gone a little bit earlier in the story, possibly when they just came out of Egypt or possibly at Mount Sinai or at any other point in the story. It seems awfully late to say, oh, and by the way, those foreign gods that you have hidden in your tents, you might want to get rid of them now. Now that might sound a little bit strange, but did you hear in God's history that he begins with Terah, Abraham's father, and says that his father, and most likely Abraham and Nahor, his brother, worshipped other gods across the river. Here's the second indicator that the people of Israel are still caught up in the worship of foreign gods. And, and he's not even talking about the nations amongst them now. He's just talking about this historical pattern of continuing to cling to these foreign gods. If you want to know more, read about uh, Jacob in the book of Genesis. It's fascinating. He, he sees a vision of God at Bethel. And he sees angels kind of going up and down. And God makes these extraordinary promises to him. And Jacob makes a deal. He says, okay. 
if you will watch out over me and make sure I've got enough to eat and all that sort of stuff, bring me back safely to my father's house, even though my brother wants to kill me because I just ripped him off, right? Then you can be my God. The Lord says, okay. The story progresses chapters and chapters and chapters later, and Jacob does return, and God has indeed looked after him, and his brother doesn't want to kill him anymore. And it's at that point that Jacob says to his family, let's get rid of the foreign gods. And they collect them all and bury them under a tree. What? Here, Joshua says to the people, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped. And then the kind of the famous verse, the most famous verse in Joshua. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered. That's a good answer. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They actually repeat the themes of God's speech. They point out that he's protected them, that he's watched over them, that he's provided. We will serve the Lord. This is what they declare. Now, I don't know, again, what the soundtrack is at this point in time. Maybe there's some sort of coming crescendo as Joshua says, now, now commit to the Lord. And the people says, we will commit to the Lord. And then it comes crashing down in a minor chord. Because Joshua's next line is, you are not able to serve the Lord. Oh. Okay. He says, the Lord is holy. He is jealous. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people replied, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourself that you've chosen to serve the Lord. They say, yes, we are witnesses. Now then, Joshua says, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Kind of an odd little interaction, isn't it? It's a strange little interaction. Let me begin with the, uh, the almost heresy that Joshua cited. Did you pick it? It's amazing what you find when you pay attention to this thing. I mean, listen to what Joshua says. You are not able to serve the Lord. All right, well, you read the history of Israel, tick, that sounds about accurate. God is holy. I've read that somewhere, surely, tick. He is a jealous God, tick. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins, question mark. <laughs> Isn't the entire history of Israel one long history of God continually forgiving the rebellion and sins of the people of Israel? I mean, yeah, it eventually gets to the point where they are taken into exile, but that's like, it's hundreds of years beyond the pages here. Surely this must be some sort of hyperbole, calling the people to make this really serious commitment. This is not something to be kind of fooled around with. You can't just kind of say this sort of stuff. You can't just say you're going to serve the Lord. You got to think this thing through. And they say, yes, we'll serve the Lord. He says, oh, you're witnesses against yourselves. Yes, we're witnesses. All right. Throw away your gods. Yes, we'll serve the Lord. But did you notice what's missing? Again, hard to spot because it's not there. They never throw away their gods. They never throw away their gods. Which, which makes the conversation even stranger. 
Joshua says, serve the Lord. They say, we will serve the Lord. He says, well, get rid of your gods. We'll serve the Lord. Okay, get rid of your gods. <laughs> We're going to serve the Lord. Are you listening? Are you listening to yourself and are you listening to me? Uh, serve the Lord. Fine, well, then get rid of your gods. We'll serve the Lord. <sighs> and they never get rid of their gods. Here's how the story goes. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then he dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. That's interesting, isn't it? that Joshua would use as an example a stone. The people of Israel will often accuse of being hard-hearted. Ezekiel said to them that the day would come when the Lord would remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, one that was sensitive to the things of God. This stone, he says, this stone will serve as a witness against you. And this little threefold denial reminds me a lot of Peter. That was the other thing I thought of when I was working my way through this passage. It sounds pretty much like Peter. You remember Peter? I mean, his, uh, his uh, sin was the denial of Jesus, right? But it was the same thing, wasn't it? Lord, I will never forsake you. Three times tonight, Peter, you will. No, Lord. That other lot, absolutely. I can see why you could say that about them. But me, never. I don't know him. I don't know him. I swear to God, I don't know him. And the rooster crowed. In both cases, there's a disconnect between the words of their lips and the motivation of their heart. And this is the final word in the book of Joshua. And I ask you again, what's the soundtrack doing? What, what's the tone of this book? Is this book really limping to its conclusion? Are we getting to the point where this book is actually just kind of going to just fall over the line? Whew, glad that's over. Is there any triumph in this? Is there any looking forward? What is this final word for us? What is the tone that this might set for us? And it doesn't take very long when you get into the book of Judges to see that the people, because they did not throw away their gods, stumble really quickly. It's only a couple of chapters, and the place has fallen apart. Which, of course, invites us into some really significant reflection, doesn't it? I mean, as those who know the end of the story, this, this whole book points to Jesus, doesn't it? Because Joshua's right. You can't serve the Lord. He is holy. He is jealous. You're unable to serve the Lord. The state of your heart is not fit for the service of the Lord right now. And it points to Jesus. It points to the day when, when hearts will be changed. It points to the day when we will be able to serve the Lord, not because we are spectacular individuals, but because the Spirit of God has been given to us. In the context of Joshua, it reminds us of the constant invitation that is found in the book of Joshua towards faithfulness. That all that God has done for them, all of his protection, all of his provision, all that he has sought to do for them is to invite them into a deeper relationship with him. 
that they might indeed be a people, a living, breathing community of faith that shows the world what it looks like to live in a relationship with God. But it also, of course, invites some reflection for ourselves, doesn't it? Because this question is not only a question for the people of Israel, it's a question for everyone who reads this text. And it is this. Whom will you serve? And if you dare say, we will serve the Lord, I'm under compulsion to say two things to you. You are not able to serve the Lord and get rid of your gods. Get rid of all those things that trip you up, that slow you down, that tangle you up, that harden your heart. Get rid of them. You tell me that you are going to serve the Lord? Fine. Prove it. It's a pretty big challenge, isn't it? We cannot read the, the book of Joshua and, and, and walk away saying, well, that was a really interesting historical reflection. I learned a lot about the ancient Near East. I, I learned a whole lot about how the violence in the text can be explained. That was really fascinating. It's not even enough for us to say, wow, the people of Israel really kind of missed the boat in the following books, didn't they? It's not enough to say, isn't it amazing how the book of Joshua points us to Jesus Christ? Isn't that amazing? It's like he's written into the whole thing from the very beginning. It's not enough. We need to hear this text and hear this question asked to us. Who will you serve? And it's only when we can answer that question that we have appropriately grappled with this text. And this text invites two things. It invites a recommitment to faithfulness and as a means to that, as a first step, it invites repentance. To acknowledge our failure and then to recommit ourselves to the Lord. So that our story as individuals and as a church doesn't end up looking like the book of Judges. Judges.